the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The 116th Psalm, verse 15, tells us, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, meaning it matters to him. The passing of a saint is a time of rejoicing as that saint leaves this world and is welcomed into a perfect place to be with our Lord. Paul said that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so today, the Lord welcomes into heaven Dr. R.C. Sproul. He went home today about 3 o'clock this afternoon, surrounded by his wife Vesta and family in his hospital room in Alamante Springs, Florida. Dr. Sproul was 78. He died peacefully after being hospitalized about 12 days ago due to severe respiratory difficulties exacerbated by the flu and complicated by chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. Known to millions of Christians as simply R.C., he was used of the Lord to proclaim, teach, and defend the holiness of God in all its fullness. Through his teaching ministry and broadcast ministry, many of us learned that God is bigger than we knew, our sin more deeply rooted than we imagined, and the grace of God in Jesus Christ overwhelming. God called R.C. to proclaim the gospel to as many people as possible. And in fact, Dr. Sproul did this knowing the Lord did not need him. In fact, he wanted people to know the enduring, faithful witness of God's servants throughout church history. God powerfully used R.C.'s ministry in the 20th and 21st centuries to awaken people around the world to the truths of classical, historical, reformist Christianity. It perhaps belongs to others in the coming days, weeks, and months, perhaps years ahead, to assess the overall impact of Dr. Sproul's ministry in the history of the church. In this moment, we feel a loss, immense sadness, profound loss, the loss of a pastor, a teacher, a leader, a brother in Christ, a friend. R.C. now sees fully the object of his faith, the risen Christ, high and lifted up. As he hears the seraphim song before the throne, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth and heaven is full of his glory. Hosanna in the highest. Today we celebrate the welcoming home of Dr. R.C. Sproul. For those of you that are fans of his broadcast ministry, we've called out of the KFAX archives a very special piece of broadcast audio that, in fact, has only been heard one time before. This is a presentation that Dr. Sproul gave to approximately 600 Bay Area pastors at the 2009 KFAX Pastors Appreciation Luncheon. We hope that you will be moved, as those pastors were, by the words from Dr. Sproul. Uh, what a pleasure it is for me to be with you today and to hear the testimony of a man who spent 50 years in the same pulpit. And uh, it reminds me of the Old Testament admonition that the priest should weep between the porch and the altar. There's no time in my life when I feel more inadequate and more helpless 
than when I get up and go up the stairs of the pulpit of my church. No matter how much preparation, no matter how much study, whatever skills I've been able to learn over the years, I know that I am utterly powerless unless God the Holy Spirit attends the preaching of that Word. And that's what I weep for, that's what I pray for, that's what I live for. And when I heard this man stand up, I thought to myself, it doesn't matter what I say to the pastors who are here this morning, if they would just hear the two secrets that he gave to you of prayer and expository preaching, if you'll hear those things, maybe they won't be secrets anymore. I'd like to read a brief passage this morning from the pen of the Apostle Paul from his letter to the church at Rome, a few verses from the first chapter of that epistle, and I will be uh, skipping around a little bit through the first chapter, beginning, however, at verse 1. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And after this greeting, I'm going to drop down to verse 16, where in the next couple of verses we have what virtually every New Testament scholar would agree is the thematic statement for the entire epistle which thematic statement would also explain the essence of the entire ministry of the Apostle Paul. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, that is the gospel, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Will you pray with me for a moment? Again, O Lord, I ask that you would send help. that you would send your Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, to illumine 
the words of the text that I've just read, to take them beyond the cells of our brain and pierce the inner chambers of our soul by your word. That we who preach it may first hear it and embrace it ourselves. For we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Being pastors, you all know the symbolism of this gesture and what it means. Absolutely nothing. It was Monday, February the 15th, in the year of our Lord, 1,546, where the magisterial reformer whom God had used to bring the gospel out of obscurity and into the light afresh preached the last sermon he would ever preach during his earthly life. That sermon was preached by Martin Luther in the little village of Eisleben in the eastern part of Germany. One of the ironies of church history is that it was in that village that Luther was born. But it was only a few months after his birth that his parents moved from Eisleben. But here he was back, ready to give his final sermon. Of course, he didn't know that it was his final sermon. His lectures at Wittenberg University had been interrupted by an urgent plea from the townspeople of Mansfield, next nearby to Eisleben, where a serious controversy had broken out between two noblemen who had much power and influence in the region. And so they sought Luther to make this winter's journey back to the area of his birth that he might mediate this dispute between the nobles and perhaps through the grace of God, bring peace once again to the area. And so Luther acquiesced to that request and made the arduous journey in the midst of winter. And while he was there, he preached virtually every night, not only on Sunday morning and Sunday evening, But in the evenings during the week, and it became known very rapidly that Martin Luther was back. And so peasants, merchants from every village from miles around came crushing into that little village of Eisleben to hear Luther speak. And then on that Monday evening, February the 15th, preaching from a text in Matthew, 
Luther preached his last. The following day, he took to his bed, and while in bed, was able to sign as a witness to the covenant agreement between the disputing nobles. And two days after that, Luther died. His last words were recorded as the minister was there and he was asked while he was in a coma and expected not to be able to speak at all. They whispered into his ear, do you still believe in this gospel of justification by faith that you have been preaching? And for the last time, Luther opened his eyes gave his last word, Yavol. And he closed his eyes, and he died. A week after that Monday night, his remains were buried back in Wittenberg. When news of his death had first reached the university, his colleague and friend, Philip Melanchthon, was teaching a class when somebody came to the door and tapped on the window and got Melanchthon's attention, and he left his class for the moment, went out in the hall, and the students could see somebody whispering into his ear. They didn't know what was said, but they knew it was something dramatic because they saw the immediate change in the visage and countenance of Philip Melanchthon. His shoulders began to slump. His head was bowed. He came back into the classroom, found it difficult to compose himself, and then said to the students, the charioteer of Israel has fallen. One of the great privileges of my life was to climb the stairs of that very pulpit in Eisleben and to give a small summary in the 21st century of the same sermon that Luther gave that night. I'm not going to preach the entire sermon to you because it would not really be a good example of expository preaching. <laughs> By way of introduction to the text of Romans, I would like to give a few observations from the sermon. The first words of the sermon were these. Luther, after reading the text, said, this is a fine gospel, and it has a lot in it. And then after about two minutes of explanation of that, he, he made a statement that I wrote down. I don't like to usually read quotes, but this one I found so significant for me at least that I wanted to pass it along to you because it captures the basic gist of his final sermon. He said that we live in a time that the leaders of the church and of the nation believe that everything that God does 
they must improve upon. God is everyone's pupil, and there is no poorer, no more insignificant or more despised student on all the earth than God himself. Everyone wants to correct him. Everyone wants to be his counselor. Everyone wants to counsel him to change his will. Everyone wants to rebuke him for how he manages this universe. But most importantly, everyone wants to teach him what the gospel really ought to be. Luther said this, it's like the egg thinking that it's wiser than the hen. He says, the world is discouraged by politicians who oppress people and exploit people and are searching for their own power and glory. And we know them, Luther said, as wiseacres. That's the English translation of the German. And here's my favorite word in the sermon, jackanapes. Does anybody know what a jackanape is? It's not a term that we hear very often in our culture, is it? The first time that I ever heard the term jackanape, apart from this sermon, was in watching a remake or a rerun of a late 1930s movie that featured the Hollywood debut of the swashbuckling hero Errol Flynn. In that movie, he assumed the role of Captain blood. And his enemies were the pirates of the Caribbean, and he referred to these pirates as jackanapes, as rogues. So when you hear the term jackanape, you can think of somebody who is a corrupt, roguish pirate. And Luther, if he were here this morning, would look at you and say there are too many jackanapes <laughs> in this room. But he wouldn't say that about you. Here's what upset Luther. He said in the recent past, the people of this village and surrounding villages would have traveled to the end of the earth if they knew they could hear a word from God. But now that the gospel has been recovered from darkness and preached clearly in every pulpit and every Sunday, people have grown weary with it bored by it, 
and are trying to find a way to improve it. And so he said, the Pope has planted his decoy duck upon the pond to lure us to something other than the gospel. For example, he said, in nearby Trier, they boast of having the Lord God's coat, and in Aiken, another village not far away, they have in their reliquary the pants of Joseph and the chemise of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the people believe that there's power in those relics. Now, Luther understood that because he was there for Wittenberg. And you remember the story how Frederick, elector of Saxony, one of the few men who had the ability to cast a vote for the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, which was neither Holy Roman nor was it an empire. (laughs) But one of the delegates that would vote for the next emperor was Frederick Elector of Saxony, an extremely wealthy man. He had virtually built the town of Wittenberg, and his pride and joy was to establish a new university there, bringing the most brilliant scholars he could find, like Luther and Melanchthon and others, so that he could rival the universities in Heidelberg and Cologne and other cities of Germany. But even beyond the building of the university, it was the dream of Frederick, a rector, elector of Saxony, to have the largest collection of relics that could be found anywhere, not only in Germany, but anywhere outside of the city of Rome itself. And so with his riches and his entrepreneurial abilities, he amassed a collection of relics, 19,000 and some relics. The value in terms of indulgences found in those 19,000 relics, if a pilgrim would make their way to Wittenberg and look and observe at each one of those relics, they could gain 1,000,000. 970-some thousand years of relief from purgatory. You know, some people could go to purgatory with just so few defects in their character that they could be out and on their way to heaven within a matter of days or weeks. Other jackanapes could be there for (laughs) two million years or so and even... The reliquary amassed in Wittenberg by Frederick wasn't quite enough. By the way, when you read the history of the indulgence controversy that provoked the 95 Theses and all of that, you'll recall that Tetzel did not come over the border but had to stay outside of Saxony because even the Pope didn't want to mess around with Frederick's relic inventory, which boasted some hair from the beard of John the Baptist, 
from straw, from the cradle of Jesus, a piece of the stone upon which our Lord was standing when he ascended into heaven. Now, we laugh at that. Although this summer I was in a church in Cologne that had relics from the Magi, which was a major attraction there to this day. But how do we translate that into contemporary terms? We don't have reliquaries in most of our churches. People don't run to our church so that they can get some time off from purgatory. And we're not all of that uh, intoxicated by discovering relics for our church. However, we look for the very same thing that the people were looking for in the 16th century. We're looking for power. We look for the very same thing that the people were looking for in the 16th century. We're looking for power. We're looking for something that will build our churches, something that will make us able to answer our consistories or our elder boards or whatever it is and show growth that is impressive. We are discouraged and we know that 16,000 pastors leave the ministry every year in America, some for moral failure, but most out of just abject discouragement. Because nobody seems to be interested in their ministry, we still remain the lowest paid professional group in America, and I don't know anybody who ever went into the ministry to get rich. If they did, they were foolish. (laughs) And if they became rich anyway, they were either crooked, (laughs) blessed, or just plain lucky. Because it's not the most lucrative job in the world. And yet, every year when our salaries are discussed and so on, whatever the churches pay us communicates a message of how much they value us. And that can be exceedingly discouraging for somebody who has intentionally sought to make a living sacrifice of their lives for the sake of the kingdom of God. And we are seduced. And Luther said, people no longer look to the gospel. It's not the gospel where God has invested his power. It's not the gospel that's going to change people's lives and build the church of Christ in this world. It's not the gospel. It's Joseph's pants. That's what does it. And in our day, it's methodologies, techniques, the latest Madison Avenue study, 
that gives us the formulae we need. I remember early in the days of the study center, and we were distributing tapes, and uh, we had a consultant come in and said, if you really want to grow this tape ministry, you're going to have to learn marketing principles. And he went and explained like 10 of the most important principles that have been discovered in Madison Avenue on how to sell your product, how to market your ministry. And after all, he said, Paul not only went to the synagogue, he went to the Agora, to the marketplace to spread the gospel. And he said, here's what we learned. And I looked at the 10. I'm busy. These are preachers. (laughs) And I looked at these these suggestions that the consultant set before me, and I said, boy, I see they work. This formula really works. I said, unfortunately, we can't do it. Why not? You have to promise a benefit if you're going to get people to use your product. I said, I can't. I can't say to them, listen to this tape, it's going to change your life. The only thing I can guarantee that will change about your life is that you'll be $2 poorer than you were before you bought it. <laughs> and over 38 years, I've constantly had to talk to the people in our, my own ministry and say, hey, we can't say this. We can't do this. Oh, but this will work. I, I don't care if it works or if it doesn't work. What we do has to have integrity, and it has to be of the truth. Now, after saying these things, Luther said, there's much more that can be said about the gospel, and these were his last words from a pulpit, but I'm too weak. And we'll just have to let it go at that. I read this text for a reason at the beginning of Romans. Paul's magnum opus where it begins by identifying himself and his ministry. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus. Excuse me, I can't read this in the English without immediately feeling a sense of feeling a sense of rebellion in my visceral parts with that translation servant. If you know anything about Greek, do you know Greek? I know a little Greek. He's a tailor. I took a pair of Joseph's pants to him. (laughs) And he looked at me and he said, Euripides? (laughs) Am I going too fast? (laughs) Euripides? I said, yes. He said, I'm Enides. (laughs) I know a little Greek. 
If you know your Greek, you know that the word Paul uses here is the word doulos. It's not just a hired hand. It's not a domestic employee that can come and go as he please. A doulos is a slave. He's bought and he's purchased. And he's owned by a curios, a lord. There can't be a curios without a doulos, and there can't be a doulos without a curios. And Paul understood who he was. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. The most expensive purchase in all of human history. Paul understood that, that Jesus had bought him with his blood. And so when Paul first identifies who he is, he chooses the word slave. Paul, slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. I don't know what your theology is, but I can tell you what mine is briefly. I don't believe there's anybody in this room or anybody in this world who's an apostle. Not in the sense that Paul was. There ain't nobody in here who's given new revelation to the church either. If there was, I'd be lobbying to get your teaching in the next edition of the New Testament. But I noticed that the Bible translators are not breaking down your door to get your stuff. But Paul understood that to be an apostle, to be a prophet, to be a minister required that you be called. You know, they said that some were sent and some went. We got too many of those who went that were never sent. You know what they are? Jackanapes, right. <laughs> hey, they're pretty smart out here, you know? <laughs> they must have been the Sproul Plaza and Sproul Hall there in Berkeley. It's named after a distant relative of mine who didn't know how to pronounce his own name. Paul, called to be an apostle, listen to this, set apart. And what I'd like to ask those of you who are in the ministry today to do for me, and more importantly for yourself, and even more important than that, for the church, is to think back to the moment of your ordination. I don't know what, what religious body you were ordained. I don't know the liturgy by which you were ordained. But however it happened, it was supposed to be an event of consecration, of being set apart, 
to a holy function, to a godly vocation. And so Paul says, here's who I am, a slave called to be apostle. Set apart to what? For the gospel of God. Set apart to what? For the gospel of God. Two things I want you to see here. He said, I was set apart to the gospel. That's my reason. That, that's the reason I exist. I have no other purpose in life than to be faithful to the gospel to which I was called and to which I was set apart and consecrated by God the Holy Spirit. Now, we use the term somewhat glibly, oh, I'm in the gospel ministry. What do you do? I'm a preacher of the gospel, but I find that when I ask ministers in my doctor of ministry programs where I teach, I'll take time, I'll go to the blackboard, and I'll say, okay, you all preachers of the gospel? Yes. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Let's be like Vince Lombardi after the Packers lost a game and played sloppy, and he got him back to practice. He said, okay, guys, we're going back to fundamentals. And he grabbed the football off the table, and he said, all right, gentlemen, this is a football. Am I going too fast? <laughs> That's what I do in my doctoral program. I say, this is the gospel. What is it? And I go to the blackboard, and I pick up a piece of chalk or whatever, and I say, you tell me what the gospel is. And here's what I hear from ministers. The gospel is the good news that I can have a personal relationship with Christ. The gospel is that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. The gospel is that love, God loves all people unconditionally. The gospel is that I can have a purpose-driven life. And I listen to this stuff, and I put it on the blackboard, and I say when we're done, thanks for playing. Do you want to call a lifeline? Because you guys need help. Because you're ordained to something, and you don't even know what it is. And that's not funny. That's tragic. So if you don't know what the gospel is, let me tell you what the gospel is. The gospel has an objective content and a subjective appropriation. The gospel is not your personal testimony, as wonderful as that may be. It's not the promise of meaning and purpose, as beautiful as that may be. It isn't even the message that God loves you, as helpful as that may be. The gospel is the content of the person and work of Jesus. It is the message that this man, according to the Old Testament Scriptures and the long-awaited Messiah, 
born of the seed of David, touching his humanity, is Jesus of Nazareth, who is declared not only to be the son of David, but he the son of God through the power of his resurrection. It's the story of Christ's perfect obedience in this world under the law. It's the story of his sacrificial death that satisfied the demands of God's justice and acquires for those who believe in him the remission of all of their sins. It is the message of the imputation of his righteousness for all who put their faith in him. It is the message of his resurrection, of his ascension to the right hand of God where he has been crowned as the King of the kings and as the Lord of the lords and of his promised return at the consummation of his kingdom. That's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus. The subject... I see that hand, and I agree with you. You know, I want to hear some of these folks up here say, don't go back. Keep on preaching. I never get that in my Presbyterian church. I have to work with God's frozen chosen every Sunday morning. The subjective element of the gospel is that all of the benefits of the person and work of Jesus become mine subjectively when I put my trust in him and in him alone. That's the gospel. Let me tell you this. You can't improve on it. You can only eclipse it, water it down. You know, something else Luther said, he said that if somebody preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ boldly and accurately, there will be conflict. And I don't know about you, but I don't enjoy conflict. I've been in it up to my eyeballs since I was ordained, but I've never enjoyed a minute of it. And as a human being, I'd like to find a way to escape it by removing the scandal of the cross, making it go down easier, find another way to say it, Obscure from people the character of God and His holiness. People don't even think they need a gospel today because they don't know who God is. Let me hurry. I'm late. Don't go back. I'm not going anywhere. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship and through whom we have received grace and ministry. 
to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name to all the nations. And then before he expounds the fullness of the gospel, he reminds the people in Rome, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And what I want to leave with you this morning is this, this afternoon, this morning somewhere, <laughs> is Paul gives us a reason why he's not ashamed. He said, because it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, the Jew and the Gentile. For in that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not that righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but that righteousness that he makes available to those of us who possess none of it inherently. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. I close with these words. The beginning, Paul says, he is set apart to the gospel. I don't know if you got it to the gospel of God. And if you look at the grammar there and the use of the genitive, Paul is not saying that the gospel is a message about God. When he says, I'm set apart to the gospel of God, he's saying, I'm set apart to that message that is God's message. He owns it. You don't own it. And I don't own it. It's God's, and you can't improve it. And woe be tied unto you, jack and apes, who try to improve it. Okay. It's the gospel of God. It's God's gospel. And here's the thing. That, this is the great secret that you already heard this morning. That's where God has invested his transcendent, almighty, omnipotent power. Yes. Not in Joseph's pants. Not in your programs. Not in your methods. He's put it in the gospel. If you want a powerful ministry, You'll find it in the gospel and nowhere else. Let's pray. Father, indeed, it is a fine gospel. And by it, we are ushered into your presence, into the person of Jesus who redeems us so that our only hope in life and in death is in Him and in that gospel. Give us courage, zeal, and a resolute spirit to preach that gospel in all of its fullness to a lost and dying world. For we ask it in His name.
And with that, we'll conclude this special tribute to the late Dr. R.C. Sproul, who went home to be with the Lord today about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, surrounded by his wife, Vesta, family and friends in his hospital room in Almonte Springs, Florida. Dr. Sproul was 78. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time, then, remember, just don't keep the faith, but get on out there and faithfully share it. Till next time, so long. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.